0: Chapter Two of the Black Moth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter Two My Lord at the White Hart. Sir Anthony Ferndale sat before the dressing table in his room at the White Hart idly polishing his nails. A gorgeous silk dressing-gown lay over the back of his chair, and behind him Jim was attending to his wig, at the same time hovering anxiously over the coat and waistcoat that were waiting to be donned. Carstairs left off polishing his nails, yawned, and leaned back in his chair. A slim, graceful figure in cambric shirt and apricot satin breeches. He studied his cravat for some moments in the mirror, and lifted a hand to it. Salter held his breath. With extreme deliberation, the hand moved a diamond and emerald pin in the fraction of an inch to one side, and fell to his side again. Salter drew a relieved breath, which brought his master's eyes round to himself. "'No trouble, Jim.' "'None at all, sir.' "'Neither had I. "'Twas most surprisingly easy. The birds had no more fight in them than sparrows. Two men in a coach—' One a bullying rascal of a merchant, the other his clerk. Gad! But I was sorry for that little man. He paused, his hand on the rouge pot. Salter looked in inquiry. Yes, nodded Carstairs. Very sorry. The fat man would appear to bully and browbeat him after the manner of his kind. He even blamed him for my advent. The greasy coward. Yes, Jim, you are right. He did not appeal to me. Say, Infudby. So, ingeniously, I relieved him of his cash-box and two hundred guineas, a present for the poor of Lewes. Jim jerked his shoulder, frowning. "'If you give away all you get, sir, why do you rob it all?' he asked bluntly, His whimsical little smile played about my lord's mouth. Tis an object for my life, Jim, a noble object, and I believe it amuses me to play Robin Hood." "'Take from the rich to give to the poor,' he added, for Salter's benefit. "'But to return to my victims—you would have laughed had you but seen my little man come tumbling out of the coach when I opened the door. "'Tumble, sir. "'Why should he do that?' "'He was at pains to explain the reason. "'It seems he had been commanded to hold the door to prevent my entering. "'So when I jerked it open, sooner than loose his hold, he fell out on to the road.' "'Of course I apologised most abjectly, and we had some conversation. "'Quite a nice little man. "'It made me laugh to see him sprawling on the road, though. "'Wish I could have seen it, Your Honour. "'I would have liked fine to have been beside ye.' "'He looked down at the leith form with some pride. "'I'd give something to see ye hold up a coach, sir.' "'Hare's foot in hand, Jack met his admiring eyes in the glass and laughed. (laughs) "'Ha! I make no doubt you would.' "'I have cultivated a superb voice—a trifle thick and beery—a little loud, perhaps—ah, oh, something to dream of at nights.' "'I doubt they do, too,' he added reflectively, and affixed the patch at the corner of his mouth. "'So? "'A little low, you think? "'But twill suffice. "'What's toward? "'Down below in the street there was a great stirring and bustling horse's hooves, shouts from the ostlers, and the sound of wheels on the cobblestones—' Jim went to the window and looked down, craning his neck to see over the balcony. "'Tis a coach arrived, sir.' "'That much I had gathered,' replied my lord, busy with the powder. "'Yes, sir.' "'Oh, lord, sir!' He was shaken with laughter. "'What now?' "'Tis a curiousest sight, sir. Two gentlemen, one fat and the other small. One's all shriveled looking like a spider, while the other—' "'Resembles a hippopotamus, particularly in the face?' "'Well, yes, sir. He'd do, rather. And he'd be wearing purple.' "'Heavens, yes. Purple in an orange waistcoat.' Jim peered afresh. "'So it is, sir. But how did you know?' Even as he put the question, understanding flashed into Jim's eyes. "'I rather think that I had the honour of meeting these gentlemen,' replied my lord placidly. "'My buckle, Jim.' it's a prodigious great-coach with wheels picked out in yellow ay yana the gentlemen seem a bit put out too that is quite probable does the smaller gentleman wear somewhat er, uh, muddied garments i can't see sir he stands behind the fat gentleman mr bumblebee jim sir jim turned quickly at the sound of a sharp voice he found that my lord had risen, and was holding up a waistcoat of pea-green pattern on a bilious yellow ground, between a disgusted finger and thumb. Before his severe frown, Jim dropped his eyes and stood looking for all the world like a schoolboy detected in some crime. "'You put this—this this monstrosity out for me to wear?' In awful tones. Jim eyed the waistcoat gloomily and nodded. "'Yes, sir.' Did I not specify cream, ground? Yes, sir. I thought—I thought that twas cream. My good friend, it it is—it is—I cannot say what it is. And pea green, he shuddered. Remove it. Jim hurried forward and disposed of the offending garment. And bring me the broidered satin. Yes, that is it. "'It is particularly pleasing to the eye.' "'Yes, sir,' agreed the abashed Jim. "'You are excused this time,' added my lord, with a twinkle in his eye. "'What are our two friends doing?' Salter went back to the window. "'They've gone into the house, sir. "'No, here's the spider, gentlemen. "'He do seem in a hurry, your honour. "'Ah,' murmured his lordship, "'you may assist me into this coat. "'Thanks.' With no little difficulty, my lord managed to enter into the fine satin garment, which went on, seemed moulded to his back. So excellently did it fit. He shook out his ruffles, and slipped the emerald ring on to his finger, with a slight frown. "'I believe I shall remain here some few days,' he remarked presently. "'To, uh—allay suspicion.' He looked across at his man as he spoke, through his lashes. It was not in Jim's nature to inquire into his master's affairs— much less to be surprised at anything he might do or say. He was content to receive and promptly execute his orders, and to worship Carstairs with a dog-like devotion, following blindly in his wake, happy as long as he might serve him. Carstairs had found him in France, very down upon his luck, having been discharged from the service of his late master owing to the penniless condition of that gentleman's pocket. He had engaged him as his own personal servant, and the man had remained with him ever since, proving an invaluable acquisition to my lord John. Despite a singularly wooden countenance, he was by no means a fool, and he had helped Carstairs out of more than one tight corner during his inglorious and foolhardy career as highwayman. He probably understood his somewhat erratic master better than any one else, and he now divined what was in his mind. He returned that glance with a significant wink. Twas them gentlemen ye held up to-day, sir,' "'he asked, jerking an expressive thumb towards the window. "Mm, Mr. Bumblebee and friend. "'It would almost appear so. "'I think I do not fully appreciate Mr. Bumblebee. "'I find his conduct rather tiresome. "'But it is just possible that he thinks the same of me. "'I will further my acquaintance with him.' "'Jim grunted scornfully, and an inquiring eye was cocked at him. "'You do not admire our friend.' pray do not judge him by his exterior. He may possess a beautiful mind. But I do not think so. No, no, I really do not think so.' He chuckled a little. "'Do you know, Jim? I believe I am going to enjoy myself to-night.' "'I don't doubt it, your honour. twere child's play to trick the fat gentleman.' "'Probably. But it is not with the fat gentleman that I shall have to deal. "'Tis with all the officials of this charming town. And I mistake not—' do I hear the small spider returning?" Salter stepped back to the window. "'Aye, sir. With three others.' "'Precisely. Be so good as to hand me my snuff-box—and my cane. Thank you. I feel that the time has now come for me to put in an appearance. Pray, bear in mind that I am new come from France, and journey by easy stages to London, and cultivate a stupid expression. Yes, that will do excellently.' Jim grinned delightedly. He had assumed no expression of stupidity, and was consequently much pleased with his pleasantry. He swung open the door with an air, and watched Sir Anthony mince along the passage to the stairs. In the coffee-room, the city merchant, Mr. Fudby, by name, was relating the story of his wrongs, with many an impressive pause and much emphasis, to the mayor, town clerk, and beadle of Lewes. All three had been fetched by Mr. Chilter, his clerk, in obedience to his orders, for the bigger the audience the better pleased was Mr. Fudby. He was now enjoying himself quite considerably, despite the loss of his precious cash-box. So was not Mr. Hedges the mayor. He was a fussy little man, who suffered from dyspepsia. He was not interested in the affair, and he did not see what was to be done for Mr. Fudby. Further, he had been hailed from his dinner, and he was hungry. And above all, he found Mr Fudby very unattractive. Still, a high road robbery was serious matter enough, and some course of action must be thought out. So he listened to the story with an assumption of interest, looking exceedingly wise, and at the proper moments uttering sounds betokening concern. The more he saw and heard of Mr Fudby, the less he liked him. Neither did the town clerk care for him. There was that about Mr. Fudby that did not endear him to his fellow men, especially when they chanced to be his inferiors in the social scale. The beetle did not think much about anything, having decided, and rightly, that the affair had nothing whatever to do with him. He leaned back in his chair and stared stolidly up at the ceiling. The tale Mr. Fudby was telling bore surprisingly little resemblance to the truth. It was a much embellished version, in which he himself had behaved with quite remarkable gallantry. It had been gradually concocted during the journey to Luz. He was still holding forth when my lord entered the room. Carstairs raised his glass languidly to survey the assembled company, bowed slightly, and walked over to the fire. He seated himself in an armchair, and took no further notice of anybody. Mr. Hedges had recognized at a glance that here was some grand signor, and wished that Mr. Fudby would not speak in so loud a voice. But that individual, delighted at having a new auditor, continued his tale with much relish, and in a still louder tone. My lord yawned delicately and took a pinch of snuff. "'Yes, yes,' fussed Mr. Hedges. "'But short of sending to London for the runners, I do not see what I can do.' If I send to London, it must, of course, be at your expense, sir. Mr. Fudby bristled. At my expense, sir? Do you say, at my expense? I'm surprised. I repeat, I am surprised. Indeed, sir. I can order the town cry out, describing the horse and uh, offering a reward for the capture of any man on such an animal, but— He shrugged and looked across at the town clerk. "'I do not imagine that would be of much use, eh, Mr. Brand?' The clerk pursed his lips and spread out his hands. "'I fear not. I fear very much not. I would advise Mr. Fudby to have a proclamation posted up round the country.' He sat back with the air of one who has contributed his share to the work and does not intend to offer any more help. Ho! Oh growled Mr. Fudby. He blew out his cheeks. "'It will be a grievous expense, though I suppose it must be done. I cannot but feel that if it had not been for your deplorably coward conduct, Chilter—yes, cowardly conduct, I say, I might never have been robbed of my two hundred—' He snuffled a little, and eyed the flushed but silent Chilter with mingled reproach and scorn. "'However—' "'My coachman assures me he could swear to the horse again, "'although he cannot remember much about the man himself. "'Chilter. How did he describe the horse?' "'Oh, uh, chestnut, Mr. Fubby, chestnut. "'With a half-moon of white on its forehead and one white foreleg.' Jack perceived that it was time he took a hand in the game. He half-turned in his chair and levelled his quizzing-glass at Mr. Chilter.' "'I beg your pardon,' he drawled. Mr. Fudby's eyes brightened. The fine gentleman was roused to an expression of interest at last. He launched forth into his story once more for my lord's benefit. Carstairs eyed him coldly, seeing which Mr. Hedges came hurriedly to the rescue. "'Er, uh, yes, Mr. Fudby, quite so. Your pardon, sir, I've not the honour of knowing your name.' Ferndale supplied Jack. "'Sir Anthony Ferndale.' "'Uh, yes,' Mr. Hedges bowed. "'Pray pardon my importuning you with our—' uh... "'Not at all,' said my lord. "'No, quite so. "'The fact is, these uh, gentlemen have had the uh, misfortune to be waylaid on their journey here.' Sir Anthony's glass was again levelled at the group. His expression betokened mild surprise. "'All these gentlemen?' he inquired blandly. "Oh no, 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 sir, not all, only Mr. uh—' Fudby, said that worthy, and discovered that Sir Anthony was bowing frigidly. At once he rose, and, resting his knuckles on the table before him, bent his body slowly and painfully. Sir Anthony inclined his head, whereupon, to the delight of all the rest, Mr. Fudby bowed again, with even greater stateliness than before. Mr. Hedges observed Sir Anthony's lips to twitch compulsively. He waited for Mr. Fudby to subside, and then continued. "'Yes, Mr. Fudby, and Mr.' "'My clerk,' snapped Fudby. Sir Anthony favoured Mr. Chilter with his peculiarly sweet smile, and turned again to Mr. Hedges. "'I see. A daylight robbery, you say?' "'Broad daylight,' boomed Mr. Fudby. "'Er, uh, yes, yes,' interposed the mayor, fearing a fresh outbreak from that quarter. "'I wonder if you have seen anything of such an animal as Mr. Uh, Chilter described?' Tis a most extraordinary thing,' said Carstairs slowly. "'But I have just bought such an one.' He glanced round with an inquiring smile, and one eyebrow lifted. "'Well,' ejaculated Mr. Fubby, "'well!' "'Dear me, sir! What a strange coincidence! May I ask you where you bought it, and from whom? She has not been in my possession over two hours. I bought her from an out-at-elbows ruffian on my way hither. I thought, at one time, that twas strange that the man should possess such a mare—pure bread, I vow. And I wondered why he was so eager to be rid of her.' "'He was eager, because he knew he would be recognised by her.' explained mr fudby kindly without doubt perhaps you would like to see her i will send my man oh no 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 cried the mayor we would not dream of so inconveniencing you a pleasure bowed jack devoutly hoping that mr fudby would not require to see jenny who he felt sure would betray him by her very evident affection no no sir anthony tis quite unnecessary i assure you "'But I thank you for all that. Mr. Fudby, if you would describe the man himself, I will see to the proclamation.' "'Describe him, Chilter,' ordered Mr. Fudby, who was becoming rather grumpy. Mr. Chilter smiled suddenly. "'Certainly, sir,' he said with alacrity. "'Twas a great ruffianly fellow—monstrously tall.' "'How tall?' interrupted the town clerk. Six feet.' "'Oh, quite,' lied Mr. Chilter. "'And fat!' Jack's shoulders shook. "'Fat, you say?' he asked gently. "'Very fat,' affirmed Mr. Chilter. "'And prodigious rough, swearing dreadfully in his speech. "'You could not see his face, I suppose?' Mr. Chilter hesitated. "'I could see his mouth and chin,' he said. "'And I remarked a long scar running from his underlip to the, er, bottom of his face.' Involuntarily, Carstairs' hand caressed his perfectly smooth chin. Either the little clerk was a born romancer, or for some reason or other he did not want the highwayman to be taken. "'Well, Sir Anthony,' the mayor was saying, "'does that description fit your man?' My lord frowned thoughtfully. "'Tall,' he said slowly, "'and fat,' You said fat, I think, Mr. Chilter." Rather anxiously, Mr. Chilter reiterated this statement. "'Ah! And with a long scar, yes. That is undoubtedly he—' "'Furthermore,' he added audaciously, "'he has a squint in his left eye. "'Tis a most ill-favoured rogue and all.' "'It would appear so, Sir Anthony,' remarked the mayor dryly. He did not in the least believe the story of the squint, and imagined that the fine court gentleman was amusing himself at their expense. Nevertheless, he had no intention of remonstrating. The sooner he could withdraw from this very tiresome affair, the better. So he gravely took down all the absurd particulars, remarked that the man should be easy to find, and made ready to depart. The town clerk rose and tapped the beetle on the shoulder, whereupon that worthy, with a grunt, abandoned his pose of masterly inactivity, and followed the mare out of the room. Mr. Fudby rose. "'I doubt I shall never see my money again,' he said pettishly. "'If you, Chilter, had not been so—' "'Allow me to offer you some snuff, Mr. Chilter,' interposed my lord gently, extending his jewelled box. "'Doubtless, sir, you would wish to see my mare. "'I know not of horses.' snorted Mr Fudby. 'Tis my clerk who appears to have remarked all the details he sneered terrifically. Then pray, do me the honour of walking as far as the stables, Mr Chilter. 'Twere as well to be certain about the mare. Mr uh Fudby, your servant. And now, Mr Chilter, I have a grudge against you, said Carstairs, as they walked across the little garden. Me, sir? "'Oh, uh, have you, Sir Anthony?' He looked up, and perceived that the gentleman was laughing. "'Yes, Mr. Chilter, a very serious grudge. You have described me as fat.' Chilter nearly fainted. "'You, sir!' he gasped, and stared in amazement. "'Also that I swear dreadfully in my speech, "'and that I have a scar running from my mouth to my chin.' Mr. Chilter stood stock still in the middle of the path. It was you, sir, all the time. You held us up. Were you the man who wrenched open the door? I was that infamous scoundrel. I begged leave once more to apologize for my carelessness in opening that same door. Now tell me, why did you take such pains to throw dust in their sleepy eyes? They resumed their walk slowly. The little clerk flushed. "'I scarce know, sir, save that I—that l- I liked you, and—and—'I see. Twas prodigious good of you, Mr. Chilter. "'I wonder if there is anything that I can do to show my gratitude?' Again the clerk flushed, and lifted his head proudly. "'I thank you, sir, but there is not.' By now they had reached the stable. Carstairs opened the door, and they entered. "'Then will you accept this in token of my regard, sir?' Mr. Chilter gazed at the emerald ring that glowed and winked at him from the palm of my lord's hand. He looked up into the blue eyes, and stammered a little. "'Indeed, sir! I—I—' I... "'Tis honestly come by, pleadingly. Come, Mr. Chilter. You'll not hurt my feelings by refusing. You will keep it in remembrance of a man—a fat man, Mr. Chilter, who rudely jerked you onto the road.' The clerk took it with unsteady fingers. "'I thank you most—nigh, I beg of you. "'Tis I thank you for aiding me so kindly. "'Come, and see my Jenny.' "'Well, lass!' For the mare, at the first sound of his voice, had turned in her loose box, and was whinnying and pawing the ground eagerly. "'I do not understand, sir, anything. "'How it is that you are a highwayman, "'or why you have honoured me with your confidence. "'Why you should trust me, but—thank you!' As he spoke, Mr. Chilter placed his hand in my lord's, and for the second time in his life felt the pressure of those firm, kindly fingers. "'Why, you honour, you've lost your emerald.' "'No, Jim, I gave it away.' "'Ye—ye gave it away, sir?' Mm "'Mm-hmm. To the small spider. "'But—but—' "'And he called me fat, too.' "'Called ye fat, sir?' asked the man, bewildered. "'Yes, very fat. By the way—' "'Let me tell you that I bought Jenny at Fittering to-day "'from the naughty ruffian who waylaid Mr. Bumblebee.' "'He proceeded to give Jim a sketch of what had transpired below. "'When he had finished, the man shook his head severely. "'I doubt ye'll never learn wisdom, sir,' he scolded. "'I? What have I done? "'What did ye want to tell it all to this Spider-Man for, sir? "'Twas most incautious of ye. "'Like as not, he'll split to the fat gentleman.' And we'll have the whole town at our heels, which just shows all you know of the small spider, replied his master calmly. Hand me the powder. End of chapter two, recording by Terra Mendoza, Phoenix, Arizona, May two thousand eleven.